What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects? Thank you for joining me for episode 107 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Jory. Jory is an older expat who's been traveling a long time and making a living on his moccasins that he hand sews and hand fits to the individuals who want to purchase them. His marketing scheme is really cool where he goes into a new location. He scouts out the most high traffic kind of alternative place to sit and he just sits there and sews and people obviously become very interested in what he is doing, ask him questions and he makes good living sewing his moccasins out in front of this juice bar that I frequent on most days. But it gets more interesting as I sat down and started to get to know him over many days. A lot of stories started coming up into aspects of history that I didn't really know much about or even know to look for. He talks about his mother being an experimentee in Project MK Ultra, which was done by the CIA during after World War II trying to experiment with mind control. He talks about Project Paperclip. All these things are Googleable, and you can go as deep as you want into these rabbit holes. But he talks about himself being a part of these experiments and how it really impacted his childhood, his family, and his entire life and the path that he chose. It's a really interesting episode. Listen to the whole thing. It's going to take you down some crazy rabbit holes, and maybe you will choose to dig a little deeper. But Joy was kind enough to sit down with me and talk very transparently about how he feels about his life, his upbringing, and the things that have happened to him. And one interesting little factoid, which I did get to see before and after pictures of, are the fact that he grew up with brown eyes, which he attributes to the toxicity in his body that he sustained because of all the experiments done on him by the CIA, all the poisons that were being injected in him. And he now has blue eyes and he attributes it to 10 years of trying to cleanse his body. And I saw the before and after pictures. It's, it's real as can be like he had very brown eyes, you know, through his late teens, early twenties. And his eyes are as blue as the sky. They're so light blue. Now, Jory feels that through the, all the toxicity that he sustained in these CIA experiments, left him with brown eyes until he was able to clean his body out through all the holistic endeavors that he undertook for 10 years. So have a listen. Jory is a really cool, interesting man doing some really interesting things to sustain himself around the world. And if you like, like Misfits and Rejects, you know, feel free to donate on Patreon at Misfits and Rejects. Any donation is really appreciated, always helpful, but not expected. Please follow Misfits and Rejects on Instagram. You know, I'm out here designing my own life in the way that I want here in Thailand and just trying to keep you in the loop on how things are going and hopefully motivate you to maybe take that first step as well. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and subscribe to Misfits and Rejects. After this episode, if you like the message or if you're a long-time listener and you like the message, it's always super helpful that you leave a comment and a rating on whatever podcast player that you're listening on. It really helps me in the ratings and just gets Misfits and Rejects out there for more people to listen to. So with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Jory. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Goddamn. 
Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by a special, special man here I met in Chiang Mai. His name is Jory. He is an artisan, somebody who custom makes moccasins for the passerbyers of Chiang Mai, of the places he finds himself in the world. And after getting to know him a little bit, I thought it'd be a really cool story to bring him on and, and share with the audience because his life has been very interesting and something that I think the whole world should probably learn more about and hear about because there's historical aspects to your mm. life, Jory, that I didn't know about. So welcome yeah. to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to have I'm you, my honored. Well, honored. thank you for coming on. Yeah. Um, so, Jory, if you wouldn't mind just taking us, you know, through your just your a brief history of you know how you grew up because this is pretty significant, mm. I think, to your story. I mean, <clears throat> you talked about your mother being a part of the CIA experiment um, and and MK, MK Ultra, Ultra. Mm-hmm. and that really kind of set the tone, I think, for where you find yourself today, especially within the alternative healing way of life that you live mm. and and the path that you kind of walked since then, since the age of 15, I think it sounded like. So can you kind of tell us what happened to you, your mother and your father and, and how that shaped your life? Yes. Um, my mother was, uh, had Indian blood from the same tribe as Pocahontas and my father was Scottish Celt DNA my father was high-ranking in the U.S. Army. I was born in Walter Reed Army Hospital, 1951. My mother was strapped up, injected. I was pulled out of my mother by professional killers, U.S. Army. I was put in a plastic box. I was denied the breast. I was denied any cuddling. Put in a plastic box. There's documentary evidence that I was injected with pig, monkey, bird virus, and cancer cells deliberately. I was one of the first children raised on Nazi or man-made baby formula, assuming, like the stupid white man does, that the tit is no good, except as a toy. (laughs) But, um, so, as a child... I was raised in this this matrix, and the background of it was that America incorporated the top 1,500 Nazi war criminals into America after World War II. Isn't it called Operation Paperclip? Anybody can Google it. These uh, top 1,500 Nazi scientists, many war criminals, were given amnesty from Nuremberg, and... Their resumes were whitewashed. The president was not told. The American people were not told. But these these 1,500 Nazi scientists were slipped into black operations, chemical warfare, biological warfare, nuclear physics, and UFOs. And what about mind control experiments, too? Is that Yeah, that all came out of it. Okay. Uh, somewhere around World War II, they realized they could change one atom in a chemical and have a whole new chemical. So they started experimenting like mad. And part of the Nazi agenda, which we began with fluoride in the concentration camps, fluoride petrifies the third eye, keeps people like sheep not wanting to escape. Part of the Nazi agenda was to con- kill and control everyone with chemicals. And America just took on this whole program. Uh, Operation Paperclip re- ca- turned into... MK Ultra, MK is German for mind control, MK Ultra, CIA project to experiment with various drugs on controlling people's psychology, their emotions, their behavior. 
And again, MK Ultra, you can Google it. There's a whole list of, a partial list of things they tried to uh, induce in people through chemicals. I looked it up actually yesterday, and yeah, it's, it's right there. Yeah. Erase memories, turn people murderous, turn people suicidal. Uh, they were experimenting so they could control everyone. And um, how'd your mother get pulled into this as a, an experiment? Well, she married a handsome young army officer. And the CIA, this whole agenda, they don't care who they experiment with. They experiment with their own CIA people. They experimented with battalions of U.S. troops, dosing them with LSD to see what would happen, right? They just experimented. They inoculated uh, hundreds of black people with syphilis just to see what would happen. Didn't tell them. The list goes on and on. But this MK Ultra, there was something like 15 American universities involved in it. And it involved using people with and without their consent to experiment with these various drugs. And uh, so by the time I was a teenager, my, well, I grew up with brown eyes. Genetically, they're blue, as, you've, uh, as I've shown you with the photographs. But um, by the time I was a teenager, my liver was irreparably damaged from all the chemicals. I, I grew up with Bayer Aspirin. Bayer is an original Nazi company. They just bought Monsanto. Monsanto made the original gas for the gas chambers. It's all still, the Nazi agenda still continues. The top five, the top ten Fortune 500 companies are chemical, for, for chemical companies killing millions of people, admittedly, every year, but they make so much money, it doesn't, they don't care. They, they have, whoever it is, they have no heart. It's all about money. And uh, so I never got to cuddle or be nourished by my mother. And my father, top office, top secret, top intelligence in the Pentagon, would come home, drink a liter of whiskey every night. That was military culture at the time in the 50s and 60s. A liter of whiskey a night to kill the pain because they knew what they were doing, if they had any conscience at all. And um, the first thing I remember about my mother, I was three years old. My father was setting up the first anti-aircraft base in Greenland against the Russians. And my mother and I and my sister were living with my mother's mother in the original farmhouse in Yorktown, Virginia. No electricity, no running water, we shit in pots. And, and my mother had a, her first nervous breakdown. I was crying, missing my dad. He'd been away for a year in Greenland. And I was giving my mother a nervous breakdown. She hated her mother, but she was stuck in the house she grew up with two, my daughter, my sister and I. She was two years older. And so I remember my mother spanking me because I was crying for my dad. <clears throat> uh, and that, and he came back shortly after and they put her in the mental institution. She had a nervous breakdown, what they called. And from then on, they repeatedly, and my parents told me this, they froze her, ice baths, electrocuted her, electrotherapy, and you can Google, these are Nazi experiments, hydro, uh, uh, hypothermia hmm. and electrotherapy. But anyway, they repeatedly froze my mother, electrocuted my mother, and I, I counted, personally counted the pills, 30 chemical counter-indicating experimental pills a day. They turned into a zombie cadaver. The, the Nazis are famous for cadavers. 
and uh, they were trying to theoretically stabilize after electrocuting her. She was only 45 kilos, five foot two. Those electric shocks in the ice baths would have been devastating. And uh, so then they pumped all these drugs in to try and get some stability, but all, they just turned her into a zombie cadaver, as I said. And the best doctors in America, all of a sudden, they said, mm, what's that? And so my mother's like a, a corpse, but she has a cancer the size of a large head of cabbage in her abdomen. Mm. So she would have been like a pregnant cadaver. Yeah. This is the best doctors in America, right? So they totally eviscerated her. They cut out all of her guts, gave her a colostomy, experimental radiation, experimental chemo, and 30 chemical pills a day till she couldn't swallow, and then intravenous. And she finally mercifully died. And my father... Topped How old was she when she died? 42. 42. I was 14. And uh, so my father, again, as I say, top office, top secret, top intelligence officer in the Pentagon, they forcibly retired him. They sent him away for eight months. They said he had TB. God only knows. But he came back like a corpse, covered with bed sores, and they had chemically erased his memory. He was a zombie. And he was dead the next year. He died a year after. Yeah, he died at 50. They, they erased his memory because once my mother died, they considered him a loose cannon, right? He was so heartbroken that his beautiful Indian princess had been... He, he believed in the American matrix and American medicine. He thought it was all fair dinkum and, and that they were trying to heal her, but they weren't. They weren't. And um, I just read today, pharmace pharmaceuticals, the original Latin meaning is poison. Hmm. The word pharmacy. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But all these vaccinations, all vaccinations are poison, all chemical medicines are poison, and it's just a giant money-making mind-control experiment. So, and from the study I've done, America... They, uh, they talk about democracy, apple pie and ice cream, but America has bombed over 70 democracies since World War II. The CIA has, through black operations, created almost every conflict on the planet since World War II. And the whole program of divide and conquer, which is what America follows, they'll go into a country that's totally peaceful, like Iraq or Iran, all the tribes are getting along together, they're very abundant, they're, uh, but they don't want to go along with the U.S. and World Bank money policy, and that sets them up to be blown off the face of the earth, and that's what they do. And every country America touches, they destroy, and that's part of the legacy from the British Empire. Every country Britain touched, it destroyed, and there's no recovery. Iraq will never recover, Afghanistan, Libya, Vietnam, Cambodia. You been to Cambodia? I have not yet, no. It's a totally different vibe than Thailand. Thailand, Thailand they fucked up by basing themselves in Phuket to bomb Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. That's started the downward trend, and, and the CIA put a 
uh, high-rise in Bangkok in the 70s. But the countries that America did blow away, like more bombs on Cambodia than all of World War II, those, those countries are devastated. They totally destroyed the ancient culture, the agricultural basis of the countries. All the families were destroyed. Only bare surviving refugees survived. And some of them came to Thailand. But the people, you can, you can feel the vibe in Cambodia and Laos not nearly as happy as they are here in Thailand. Interesting. And same thing with Burma, too. Uh, the British and whatever went on there, you just, you just don't feel the same amount of happiness. In right. What about, you know, that pivotal moment when, you know, your mother had just passed, your father passed a year later, and you're only, what, now 15 years old. What did you do? Well, my father died when I was 19. He, oh, okay. It took five years oh, okay. for, him, for him to die. But, uh, so anyway, as a teenager, uh, about 1969, LSD, Timothy Leary, the hippie movement in America, I took LSD, and I looked in the mirror, and I could see, because it opens the third eye, I looked in the mirror, I could see the pollution oozing under my skin, I became vegetarian, raw food, one of the first raw fooders in America. I was hitchhiking around on raw food. And my father died on my 19th birthday and left me 70,000 U.S. dollars, which dribbled to me. I had an allowance of $88 a month. But with that $88, I hitchhiked around America uh, about 100,000 kilometers. I visited every health guru. I lived in metaphysical libraries. I, I taught myself nutrition, anatomy. I visit, uh, I visited all the naturopaths and I studied natural healing on my own and I, I purified radically. I didn't touch sugar for many years. I didn't touch dairy for many years. I lived on raw foods, raw fruits, nut and vegetables, fruit and nut diets, two years of enemas every day. And somehow, I managed to clean my act up, my, my physical temple, because my, my objective was to purify my physical temple so I could be a clean channel for the spirit. And that's why I'm alive and sitting here in front of you today, and that's why my eyes are blue, because I spent that much time working on healing myself. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, he actually did have brown eyes. He showed me photos of himself, very brown eyes, mm. growing up through his teenage years, and now they are blue. Yeah. Blue as can be, and it's pretty crazy that, I mean, so... And the doctors in America, as a teenager, it hurt to walk. My liver hurt walking. And the doctors in America said, your liver is irreparably damaged. We can't do anything for you. And But through fasting and the enemas... And I also used castor oil packs. I healed my liver, and I, that was almost 40, almost 50 years ago. So you started <laughs> this whole, like, health adventure, if you say, if you will. Yeah. When you were, like, 19-ish or 15-ish? Um, when, did, when did you kind of decide this is... Yes, well, 18-ish. Well, I started becoming a vegetarian probably around 17, and then got radically into it around 18 or 19 years old where we started fasting and living on juices and things like that 
And you were just living off of this eighty-eight bucks a month that you had. Eighty-eight dollars a month, yeah. And how? And how many? But that years? was that was back in nineteen seventy-one and two and stuff like that. And so it used to go a lot farther than today. Of course. What I mean, you you also sought out a lot of these kind of gurus and and health experts mm. around the country, kind of hitchhiking from one to another. Yeah. Learning, yeah. learning this and understanding how this works. Um, can. Who were who the most significant players in your life that really kind of showed you a path that you felt you'd want to continue to walk? Well, I I, live, I lived at uh, Hippocrates Health Institute for a while. I knew I knew um, Anne Wigmore, the lady who brought wheatgrass to the world. Victor Skavinskis, he wrote the book uh, Survival into the 21st Century. I knew Dr. Christian Bernard. I knew Bernard Jensen. Uh, the man who wrote the encyclopedia on iridology. Uh, his name is slipping my mind at the moment. What is iridology? Dr. Christopher, his name was. Okay. Iridology is the science of the iris. Okay. And they can tell where there's places with specific organs. Just like your feet, reflexology, parts of your foot respond to different parts of your body. Mm-hmm. Same thing with your irises. They reveal what's going on. And the brown in my eyes was chemical toxemia. And it takes years to accumulate. I grew up with the first McDonald's, the first, first Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, I I didn't get the tit, but I got two liters of Pepsi Cola every day to rinse my teeth. I, I, I rinsed my teeth twenty four seven Pepsi Cola. All my t- teeth now are Thai teeth. And in America, in those days, they get in your mouth with a jackhammer and pack it with mercury, and that's the legacy of my mouth, and that's why. And then uh, years in Australia, the denti- dentistry in Australia is horrible and hugely expensive. No good. And so 30 years there didn't help my mouth either. Thank God I discovered I could come to Thailand and get my teeth done. How did you, you get, after all the years of traveling around America and, and working with all these gurus or you know, self-help people, did you get to Australia? What, well, what took you there? I read the book 1984. Orwell? Orwell's uh, yeah. 1984. And I said, that I've got to get out of America by 84. And I left the mainland in 78, stopped in Maui, and got stuck romantically for six years, but bailed out in 84 because I knew I had to get out. But back to the thing about America, I also knew, uh, I knew education. I lived in metaphysical libraries. I, I studied voraciously all the religions, all the all the occultism. I knew Edgar Casey's son and his grandson, and I met a number of uh, spiritual. I visited every yoga ashram. I visited every every guru that I could find. Uh, Krishnamurti was a big influence on me. Because he said, no guru, and you just put it all back on yourself. Because I wasn't into being a sheep. And um, and plus I read the, these amazing books by intelligent, spiritually awakened people. And that's just where I set my intentions in life, was to be a channel for whatever God is. And um, So when you decided to get out at 84... Was Australia on your horizon? That's what you were kind of shooting for? Yeah, or was it yeah. just... Yeah. And why why did you choose Australia then? Well, I checked out New Zealand twice. Just because I'd heard 
same size as America, 5% of the population. It was called the lucky country in those days. And I still believed it was an independent in, uh, country. They speak English, obviously. But I didn't realize how, how deeply embedded they were with the U.S. government, the CIA, and the corporations. And Australia is actually an American corporation. It's run by the CIA and, and corporate corporations. 800 corporations walk out of Australia every year with paying no tax. Hmm. The common people are taxed 40%. It's such a joke. Australia is such a joke. And, and the people they get in there for the government, the premiers, are just buffoons. It's, it's a circus. The parliament, the parliament in Australia, they're just like a bunch of clowns screaming and make, and putting each other down and, and blaming each other. And they get nothing done, any good at all. Every day they're committing crimes against humanity, against the environment, against refugees against the poor people in Australia, and it's totally a fascist CIA regime. Now, when you were there, in one of our conversations prior to this, you were telling me that you were a gold miner? I spent seven years in Australia looking for gold, yeah. And well, you see, in Maui, in Maui, I learned to grow ganja, six years apprenticeship, and, um, and I came to Australia, I grew a crop that made me famous because I, I knew what I was doing. In those days, you could get, just get a bag of black moldy. They didn't know how to grow it. They didn't know how to cure it. So when I had my, I brought Maui Wowie seeds, I grew beautiful marijuana, sold big bags of beautiful rainbows, perfectly mature, perfectly cured, overweight. It made me famous. It all went through two pubs in one town. So I got busted and I went to jail for six months. And in jail, I met a gold prospector. I got out of jail. I worked three jobs. I bought myself a four-ton international harvester truck, live-in. I spent seven years living in that truck in the deserts of West Australia, the Kimberley and the Pilbara. There's a half a kilo. I found a kilo in the first four months. Wow. He's showing me photos of his truck and his gold right now. Pretty cool. And there's a, there's a crystalline nugget I found up in North Queensland. And this is what, did you work with the, uh, the ex-con that you met in prison? No, no, he, he was, he was in there for, he'd been set up supposedly by Aboriginal woman for rape, but, uh, no, I got out before him and I just went and did my thing. But he had kind of told you or taught you how to gold mine through your conversations? Well, he inspired me. And then okay. I got out and I met some other people. This, this is when I got out of, out of, after I got out of jail, I was selling coconuts for a living in Australia. Okay. Well, I mean, what was your experience like in jail? Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Was it? No, I don't mind. I was in uh, medium security, but at first they had me in maximum security, and they had me in a holding pen with this giant Yugoslav that had chopped his wife up with a hatchet or something. Jesus. And he wanted to trade his size 14 Varnay, uh, no, his size 14 Birkenstock moccasins for my Varnay glasses. I didn't want to do it, and he wanted to kill me, right? So... <laughs> I went to the prison superintendent and got myself shifted to uh, medium security, which is a farm, and I worked growing vegetables all day. And How'd you get caught with the marijuana? Did someone rat you out? It made me famous in this one little town, and uh, so everyone just knew. It was and you. the police would have grabbed the guy that was selling for me. He was hitchhiking out of town the day I was busted. He was a Scottish backpacker. 
and uh, they said if I told them everything, I wouldn't go to jail. And I told, I, I admitted everything on tape. And then you went to jail. And then I got six months. Yeah. Okay. But the week after I was sentenced, they passed a new law: mandatory life, mandatory life for cultivation. So I, I missed mandatory life by one week. Wow. They've changed that law since then. Mm-hmm. But that was back in 84 or 86, 85. So you went around prospecting for like seven years, and then once that dried up, what happened? What did you seven do? Seven years, yeah. Well, the truck blew five engines. All my engi- all my money went back into replacing engines, and I'd get, I got stuck for about a year and a half in one-horse towns waiting for parts from Chicago and stuff like that. And just for living off of the, the money that you made off your gold? Yeah, well, I was getting a... a uh, an unemployment benefit from the government as well. Okay. It wasn't much, but how did? So, are you now uh, an Australian citizen, or you have your permanent residence? Yeah, I became a citizen when I got out of jail. I became a citizen. Um, immigration's got a, a printout from uh, Interpol International, and it had it had the offense written in small black print, and next to each of next to the small black print was big red letters, conviction, 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 conviction. And all it was was like sleeping on the beach in Fort Lauderdale, sleeping in a van in Laguna Beach, California, hitchhiking, misdemeanors, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I spent one night in jail in, in Laguna, one night in jail in Fort Lauderdale. But Interpol had stamped each big one like a big conviction. And I had to explain this to my immigration officer in Australia. He, he believed me because it was the truth. He could see, right, sleeping on the beach. Conviction. It sounded. It looks horrible. But anyway, so I, I did manage to get my citizenship. And you kind of been there ever since. When did you uh, find this passion for making moccasins? Well, again, when I did the LSD as a teenager, not only did I see all the pollution in my physical body. But I couldn't stand white man's shoes anymore. I, I was out in the bush doing the LSD and walking around barefoot, and I realized it's got to be this way. So I threw away my white man's shoes as a teenager, and um, of course I always went barefoot all summer. But after a year hitchhiking around America, barefoot, including wintertime, snow and ice, my feet were wrecked, and I knew I needed something, and I started making myself moccasins. I wasn't trying to make money. I didn't care about money. I just cared about the kingdom of heaven. I wanted to find out what God was, the spirit. And I wanted to live a real life. I didn't want to live and die like my parents who had been totally stuck in the matrix. Here's another point. As I was, I was growing up in the U.S. Army, I was keen to kill anybody Russian, German, or slant-eyed. Right? This is the American military industrial killing matrix. Because I grew up in the U.S. Army, I thought it would be an honor to kill for America. I trained from childhood to kill for America. Um, I was going to be Green Beret. I was going to go to West Point. You've heard of General Petraeus? Mm-hmm. There's a number of generals out there fucking the world up right now. They were the class of 69. That was the class I was going to go to West Point. I would have been in there with those guys. Instead, I took the LSD. <laughs> And it smashes the matrix. That's why LSD is illegal. It heals people. It smashes this matrix. Everybody knows what the matrix is. 
it's an invisible mental box that everybody grows up in and they think so I grew up in the matrix wanting to kill for America thinking it was so wonderful as soon as I took the LSD I just wanted to make love I didn't want to make war I didn't want to kill people anymore and uh, that's why LSD is illegal it heals people Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were <clears throat> healing schizophrenia alcoholism and numerous psychological problems with LSD. And now they're rediscovering it. The scientists are finally able to do research again. They're finding that mushrooms, cactuses, ayahuasca, LSD, psilocybin, they all are powerful healing. They're biologically friendly. And like, so LSD costs nothing, biologically friendly smashes the matrix and heals people and that's why it's illegal that's why marijuana is illegal that's why opium is illegal cocaine they're all natural god-given healing plants but they've been made illegal by by the pharmaceutical companies who sell their chemical poisons inject everybody to keep them stupid and why did they inject me with pig monkey bird virus and cancer cells right like you're done ayahuasca a number of times, yeah. It's very, very much like a natural LSD. How about iboga, the African one? No. No. Done peyote a number of times. What do you like the best out of all those plant medicines? Uh, or do you have a favorite? Or they all have their purpose? Well, I like, I like good ganja. Okay. Uh, opium is totally different than heroin. Opium has, uh, pretty scarce actually these days, but, and I haven't done a lot in my life, but opium is a natural. It's one of the best healing herbs on the plant, on the planet. And um, it's got 39 alkaloids in natural opium that are known to heal and balance various aspects of the human biology. When they make heroin, they eliminate 38 alcohol, alkaloids and just keep the pain-killing one mm. or something. And, uh, and it's addictive. That's what's addictive. And uh, cocaine, the Indians used cocaine for millennium, and it wasn't a problem for them. It's, it becomes a chemical because uh, a problem because it's chemically synthesized into cocaine. And uh, ganja, of course, everybody knows now, it heals a list of things. The list is getting longer every day. Right. <laughs> But that was made illegal. There were a hundred medicines in America based on marijuana before they made it illegal. They made it illegal because they discovered they could make uh, ropes out of uh, petrochemicals, fibers. The world ran on hemp for millennium. It, was, it used to be the biggest crop in Russia. The British Navy, all the uniforms were hemp, all the sails were hemp, all the ropes were hemp. It goes on and on. Uh, but it all became Ill illegal because the petrochemical companies lobbied the U.S. government to make it illegal. And they didn't like it that anybody could uh, heal their discomfort with a puff of ganja hmm. <laughs> when they wanted to make billions of dollars. Yeah. And so like the vaccine companies today, they're pushing mandatory vaccinations, forced vaccinations, and, and the evidence is vast reams of information about all the uh, damage that 
vaccines have done and the and billions of dollars of damages they paid out, but they they're still pushing it. And this uh, Gardasil, which is to kill, uh, to keep girls from getting cervical cancer forty years later, is killing girls all over the world. And now they're making it mandatory for boy, 12 and 13 year old boys to get it as well. So they don't transmit cervical cancer from one woman to another 40 years later. Mm. It's just like so absurd. HPV vaccination. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I'm not sure, but. You know, with, with where you're at now, I mean, you still are a traveler. You get around the world with basically just selling moccasins. Is that what I understand? Moccasins and this stone and bee pollen. I, I deal the world's most delicious bee pollen. Did you try it? Not yet. Maybe I'll try it after, <clears throat> after we talk. Okay, yeah. Um, and so that's enough income then to kind of sustain yourself? Well, I've done 18 trips to China. I custom fit a thousand pairs of moccasins in China. And I used to sell a lot in Chiang Mai. I've sold hundreds in Bali, lots in. The gold prospecting came to an end, and I got back into making moccasins. And uh, so it raged for years, but you never can depend on the markets, right? Like this last year, it's been very slow. The volcanoes and earthquakes hit Bali, so my market there got squashed. I don't know what's happened in Thailand, but for a year I've hardly made any money here. Maybe I've just been here at the wrong times. But just so the audience understands, I mean, this is hands-on, hand-fitted, there is no online e-commerce. <laughs> no, no. I, I, at the moment, I've got 100 pairs. I've got 80 pairs of four varieties of slippers and 10 pairs of boots. And the fronts are sewn up and people slip their foot in and I custom fit where the heel is if they want them. Okay. But I just travel with a backpack full of moccasins, very little clothes. Couple yeah. of changes of clothes. You use different types of leather too, like kangaroo leather. I use, I, I was using kangaroo. I've got a few pairs left, but my kangaroo tanner, tanning is a dying trade. And my kangaroo tanner in Australia just went out of business this year, forced out of business somehow by big tanners. Hmm. So now, at the moment, I'm getting my leather hand picked and custom tanned in Java goat, goat and water buffalo. How'd you make that connection? Did you go there and actually see the product? Uh, I went there and I, a good friend of mine has been working leather in Bali for years. He's a, he's a jeweler and he used to be a shoemaker, but he turned me on to his leather people in Jogjakarta and I went to visit them and I told them exactly what I wanted and they handpicked the biggest, oldest billy goats for me and custom tanned for me. And then are you waiting for this all to happen? Then you, you take the leather from them there or they ship it to you they somewhere? Mailed, they mail the leather to Bali from... Not very far away. Right. It's inexpensive. And uh, then I start making them up. And I take some leather to Australia and work it up with my daughter. And I bring some with me to work on while I'm traveling, sit at cafes and so. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how you do this because, yeah, you you, you pick a, a high traffic spot with a really cool atmosphere and you'll sit there and sew away. And Theoretically, I mean, just, yeah. Just like me, like, got interested, asked you a few questions, and here we are today, you know? And, yeah. And you said... That is not working as well as it used to. Like the market just is not where it used to be. Yeah, I think I think the I think the economy, I think the world economy. You know, to, to everybody in Australia is complaining. This hotel is only three people in it, right? Mm. The streets out here used to be full of people. Have you been here before? Yeah. 
Maybe it's just the time of year. Maybe I just accidentally was here when everybody was here before. Yeah, I think next month is high season starts. Yeah. So we're still at the tail end. But of last year I was here at high season too, and I hardly well, made any. Well, next money. month's high season. We're in low season right now. Yeah, no, so, but I was here in November, okay. and December, and January last year and hardly made any money. Oh, interesting. There's a little Japanese, uh, that little corner block there yeah. with a beautiful garden. Mm-hmm. I sat there for a week. Six days I didn't do anything, any business. And then all of a sudden one day I did. I made. I finished ten pairs. Okay. <laughs> See, you just never know. You can't depend on any markets, though. I've realized that. You can't go... Uh, I did the Bali Spirit Festival five years and four years. It was quite good. This last year they... They asked me to be a sponsor. It cost me $5,000. All my money for nine months went to paying my $5,000. Assuming they were going to give me a good location, and they gave me a crap location, and I just barely broke even. Oof. I brought two people from Australia to help me. It cost me more. It cost, the whole thing cost me eight grand. I, made, I, I only came out with about seven grand, so I didn't even break even hardly. Mm. So, yeah, you're 67 now. I mean, you yeah. plan on doing this until you're 100? I don't know what else to do, but I set my sights for 120 as okay. a teenager. Okay. Because, yeah, you have, um, what, your grandmother li- on your mother's side lived to be 100? And yeah, her mother my lived father's be- mother lived 90-something years, too. Okay. I've got long-life DNA in me, but uh, and I'm as old as I am and have survived death many times because I'm... I cleaned myself as well as I did, and I keep myself relatively clean. Can you talk about that? Because you talked about a little bit with me, your routine, like you only eat once a day, and that's in the evenings. Yeah. And then what else do you consume during the daytime? At- uh, after years of raw food and fruit diets and nut diets and, and lots of fasting, now I discovered the bee pollen back in 76, and I realized that was what I really... That that grabbed me more than anything, and I'm still consuming it. And during the day, I live on f- f- fruit juices and bee pollen, ginger, ginger nectar, uh, wheatgrass shots, d- turmeric, wheatgrass shots, <laughs> stuff like that. Yes, go to cola. And, and just so the audience knows, he didn't say Coca-Cola, it's Goda-Cola, which is... Goda-Cola, that's, what is, the, that's, uh, in, that's known as Brahmi in Ayurvedic, and it's known, that's what the elephant eats that gives them long life and long memory. Mm. And um, I eat that some, some, at least, almost daily. I also make an herb mix, which I'll give you a dose of, uh, of the top organic herbal superfoods mixed together with pumpkin seed oil, hemp oil, and my own 10-year-old Manuka honey. And that's a superfood, but it's separate, no bee pollen in it, just all these other herbs. Like one one little blob of the stuff like that is equivalent to a fresh, if it wasn't all dried, mm. it would be like a big bowl of fresh salad, mm. you know, but powerful healing herbs. Beautiful. Yeah, so I just have the one meal a day. After, At the end of the day, I usually have a beer or a vodka, but I'm even getting off of that. I never get drunk. I haven't been drunk since I was a teenager because I didn't like the hangover. But I, at the end of the day, after living a very high uh, bioelectric nervous system day, I'm just buzzing. I feel I'm... my. 
I feel myself as a bioelectric fire. I don't feel myself as my body even. I'm, I feel I'm attached to my body, but I'm not that. In, I'm, I realize I'm not my body. <clears throat> I just feel this intense bioelectric energy all through the day. So at the end of the day, I have a beer. All beer has hops in it. Hops is a, is a powerful opiate. And that calms me down, relaxes me, gives me an appetite. And then I eat a beautiful, but it's got to be just right. A lot of protein in it, nut protein, eggs, uh, bran rice. And um, I immediately go to sleep. I digest it, assimilate it while I'm sleeping. I get up in the morning and poop it out. And I just run on the light foods and liquids all day. I don't have any digestion going on during the day when I'm active and my brain is... No hunger Dealing pains, anything world. like that. If I get hungry, I'll just have some... A juice. A juice or some pollen. Mm. Pollen mixed with the juice. And it seems to be doing me quite well. And you look great, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. With with the experience... And life. I've been nearly dead, even just recently. <laughs> the last last year, I've almost died a few times. From what, if you don't want me asking? I think I, I, think I might have had dengue fever... In this time last year in Cambodia, for three weeks, I was on the edge of death. Mm. Uh, I could hardly walk. I could hardly stand. I had my, my balance, headaches, a whole body racked with pain. And But I wouldn't go to a doctor. I just breathed and prayed and lived on juices. And, <laughs> and you're still here. <laughs> yeah. It took me weeks to recover, but now I'm pretty well recovered, and I've got three crushed discs in my lower back. I broke my neck in Maui in 82. I, everything, I heal myself. I started doing yoga when I was 10. I did three years of Ashtanga yoga before I broke my neck. <clears throat> now here's another little bit of the story. Uh, after 10 years of purifying, psychic vampires and cocaine got a hold of me in Maui. I didn't even know what it was. But in eight months, when people said my feet didn't touch the ground. Three years of Ashtanga, ten years of purifying, I was like a walking god. Did I show you the pictures? No, you haven't. I was a bit like a walking god. Well, I showed you that one. Oh, yeah. That was in the 70s. Big, that was about 76. Big, hair, big beard. <laughs> and that's me around that time. That's me with no food and no poo in my body. Jesus, you like super That's scary. yogic naoli, they call it. Okay. And it's considered an immortality exercise. Okay. You use your abs to massage your internal organs. You never die if you do it every day. Hmm. So when you say vampires and cocaine, how do you mean like you're well, doing cocaine every day? And I was doing cocaine every day. And I had a beautiful family from Beverly Hills, but I didn't... I didn't realize it until it was too late, and then I was trapped like a, a fly in a spider's web. Mm. And I tried to get out, tried to get out, tried to, and I couldn't get out. But um, you mean because they're just feeding you cocaine and wanting you to stay around, or you're I, I had grown a crop of marijuana to move to Australia in 1982. I was going to start teaching Ashtanga yoga. I, I was growing a crop. I was going to buy a four-wheel drive, rent a property, and start Ashtanga yoga school in Byron Bay. And that's when she targeted me. She was just getting rid of her third world-famous rich husband. And she wanted everything I had. She wanted sex, moccasins, bee pollen, uh, yoga, uh, ganja. And she targeted me. 
and um, I was just harvesting my crop. And she had, she was, I didn't know it, but she was a professional coke addict. I didn't even know what cocaine was, but she had me buy some. And she had to finish whatever I bought, and I had to keep up with her, so I had half of, we were doing a gram a day only. But um, her family, they were like the Adams family. All be- a beautiful teenage son, a young girl on the tit, a baby on the tit, and a seven-year-old. And they were beautiful, Holly, you know, Beverly Hills. She was very charismatic, the woman. And um, I was overwhelmed by their beauty. And But once I got hooked, I was stuck in there. So in eight months, 30 grand went on coke of the $60,000 crop. It just dribbled in. The money mm-hmm. dribbled in. A gram a day, and I, I supported the family for eight months. Thirty grand support, thirty grand for coke, and at the end of it, I was a, a necromancer, a walking dead man. I had shattered. I was totally drained. My aura, my etheric body, my um, my astral body was shattered, and my kundalini wouldn't rise anymore. And it took me. I landed in Australia like that in '84, and it took me a Saturn cycle, twenty-eight years. That's when the problem started for me, when I was 28. And then it took 28 years in Australia, battling the whole time to recover. So I was recovered by the time I was about 60. Hmm. And now I'm, I've been traveling almost the whole time since then. So it sounds like this last seven years has been the biggest... It's been uh, amazing, and the stone has been part of it. This is Chinese rare earth. Did, you, did I show you? Yeah, you showed me. It glows in the dark. We are beings of light, and this stone attracts, holds, and emits light perpetually. And it's known to increase abundance, prosperity, good health, good fortune, long life, synchronicity, and serendipity. And all those things have increased for me. Even though my business has been slow the last year, shit still happens. Mm -hmm. And I've been nearly dead a few times since I've had this stone. But basically, my life began again when I got this stone. And they say life begins at 60, and that's when I got the stone. And in Chinese astrology, 60 is the golden year. Nice. And, and that's when I got the stone, and, and, and I became a world a celebrity in China and wherever I go. You know, with your 67 years on this planet, can you offer the audience any advice or thoughts about, you know, anything that you've learned that you think could help them along their journey? Yes, well... Um, I owe, I live by the grace of what people call God. People can call it whatever they want. I, I use that because it's a simple three-letter word, and, and I grew up with it. But I don't think God is a, a guru up in a chair in heaven with a long beard. I've, uh, I dedicated myself to the Spirit, whatever it is. I realized on LSD I come from light and love, and whatever that is. And the spirit of light, and I don't come from Earth, but my body has DNA that has acclimatized to Earth, and I can my body can do anything on Earth. I'm very functional, <clears throat> but it's because again, when I took the LSD, I was confronted with all the evil in the universe. LSD opens up all the doors of perception. Have you heard that book, Doors of Perception, by Aldous Huxley? Psychedelics open up invisible worlds that we don't normally see. And so when I took the LSD, I was confronted by incredible 
evil. And because of that, I ran to the light inside of myself. I, I ran to the God that created me, whatever that is, and clang, clung to it to stay away from the evil and darkness, right? And my kundalini rose. My kundalini rose. And so I just, de- I dedicated myself to the spirit and purifying my body so I'd be a, a clear channel for the spirit. So that's what I would recommend to people. Clean up your act. Be conscious. Don't put shit in your temple. These bodies are a temple. It's like, this is my Mercedes that I drive around in. And so you take care of it. And it depends what you focus on. But if you just focus on making money, you're not going to have a spiritual, no, no spiritual foundation, right? <clears throat> I focused on my spiritual foundation. I, I was interested. I was one of the most intelligent people in high school in America, 97 percentile. I wasn't interested in uni. I wasn't interested in, uh, I was offered some of the first computer courses. I wasn't interested. I was only interested what is what is the kingdom of heaven? What is God? Yeah. And I wanted to make shoes. So that's what I did. And that's why I say, that's why I still live and have survived all the all the near-death experiences. Well, it sure is cool to talk to you, man, and get all that perspective. We do appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. And, yeah, the moccasins... Uh, I haven't done it full-time for 50 years, but I started 50 years ago, and I spent the years prospecting, hardly hardly did any moccasins in, but when the, that came to an end, I got back in. Somebody demanded I make a moccasins, and I got back into it. And in 22 years, I sold, I did the markets in Byron Bay. Then I started traveling, and that's when I became world famous, when I started traveling, because... Australia, there's a, a matrix of keeping everybody down, right? It's, it's the, the legacy of the prisoners that landed there. 160,000 tortured slaves landed and settled Australia. And it's passed down through the generations. But uh, as soon as I left Australia, I was appreciated overseas. Well, we thank you, Jory, for coming on the show and just your, your being. Okay. Thank you, brother. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> My honor. Wow, thank you so much, Joy, for being so transparent and open with your history and the things that you've accomplished and the ups and downs that life throws at all of us and, and how you persevered through it. And at 67 years old, you know, really striving to make it to that 120-year mark, I think, is commendable. And I wish you all the best of luck and look forward to hopefully interviewing you again when you reach that 120-year mark. That would be a really cool milestone for Misfits and Rejects and for yourself. Again, if you like Misfits and Rejects, please follow us on Instagram, at Misfits and Rejects. Please feel free to donate on Patreon, at Misfits and Rejects. You know, whatever amount is comfortable for you is always appreciated, not expected. And if you're a first-time listener, you know, please pull out your phone and subscribe, and then comment on Misfits and Rejects on your podcast player. That helps in the ratings and just gets the Misfits and Rejects message out there. So thank you again. I always love doing this for you guys and appreciate you and hope this motivates and inspires you to take that next step out into whatever lifestyle design that you want to take on. 
and I really genuinely mean this when I say this at the end of every single episode, I genuinely think you all are so very beautiful and capable of accomplishing anything you put your mind to. So I'll see you next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.